Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. All right, well, good morning. And take your Bibles, thank you, and take your Bibles, if you would, please, to Hebrews chapter 10. We are going to take a small detour from Luke until next week as we just finish up. We finished up chapter 6 of Luke and I wanted to go ahead and start 7 in the new year. So I wanted to go back though and talk about a topic we usually talk about Christmas. And on Christmas Sunday, the 20th, which was the Sunday before Christmas, is I didn't have a Christmas message, so to speak. So this week is that Christmas message called a body you have prepared, a body you have prepared. So Hebrews chapter 10, if you would, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10 uh, uh, quite a bit for the majority or the the focus of the message. But Kevin Browder, he's a pastor and and a theologian and seminary professor, in his blog called In the Nick of Time, he writes of the three Christmases that we celebrate, three Christmases that we observe especially here in the Western world. The first one is that commercial Christmas. That, that's the one all of you and I, are, we're aware of. That's the, the shopping and all the things that go to place in it. It was invented during the second half of the 19th century with the emergence of popular culture and its exploitation by realtors, realtors as soon as they, you know, as they became larger and money became more expendable for people or dispensable. Is a day that plays upon covetousness. And I've spoken about this before, especially with our parents uh, being careful. All of you probably remember when we were young, getting those, uh, the Sears catalogs and, and the dailies or the weeklies from the, you know, Sunday especially. Sunday newspapers where you'd get all the things from Toys R Us and the toys. And we would just pour over those. And we had to be really watching. You say, oh, I want this, I want that. And what I've talked about before is that really trains the heart to covet. And so we always need to, you know, and be honest, uh, that's what Instagram really is in the same way. I want that life. That's, what, that's why there's influencers. I mean, that, that's a million-dollar job now, being an influencer. All that is is, is sowing covetousness. But it's, it plays upon the covetousness, our desire to have something that we want that, or, or creating sometimes a desire that you never had. Uh, that's what job, uh, Steve Jobs was so good at. He created things that you never wanted. Things that you had never dreamed of. He created those things. Others then came and built upon what his dream was or what his, his creativity was. The commercial Christmas first transformed the giving of gifts into the expectation of receiving gifts. Do you get that? From giving to the expectation of receiving. And then into the demanding of gifts. It remains our civilization's most celebration, important celebration of avarice, of, of desire, of greed. While no one can object to the giving of gifts, it is difficult to see how Christians can enter into the spirit of Christmas, uh, of Christmas commercial without defilement. <coughs> he then gives the second Christmas is that of the cultural holiday. It's a day of red and green, holly and ivy, eggnog and caroling, tinseling, trees, lights, and so on and so forth. Such custom as yule logs and candles and sleigh bells and reindeer and Kris Kringle are all part of that cultural Christmas. Some of the traditions of cultural Christmas are ancient and possibly pagan in origin. 
Others are relatively recent, and some of these, like Rudolph, for instance, have come into the cultural holiday on loan from the commercial holiday. But then in third, there's the Christian Christmas. In principle, we would be justified in celebrating the incarnation, and that's what Christmas is. The Christian Christmas is celebrating the incarnation, Jesus becoming flesh, God coming and dwelling among us. And it's justified in celebrating the incarnation every time we come to worship. That, that's what we do. We celebrate his presence. We express our love for him. We are to be reminded of him. Many times uh, I am tempted to bring the Lord's Supper in every week because it reminds us of the incarnation of Christ. During the Christmas season, we simply direct our focus more specifically to the wonder of the incarnation. Setting aside the time to ponder this event with deliberation, and hence why we did the candles. This is our Advent candles. For those of you who came to our Christmas candlelight service, this is a time when we remember what Christ came and done for us. In principle, any season of the year would work for such a celebration for the incarnation. And late December is as good as any other. And done properly, a celebration of the incarnation can be a wonderful season of contemplation, instruction, reflection, and devotion. This is the point, however, at which cultural Christmas becomes a danger. An overemphasis upon the cultural Christmas, speaking of the holly, the tensels, the, the holiday spirit, will distract most people from the Christian Christmas. And I, I believe we're well past that point, if not the commercial Christmas even taking over. They'll be thinking about reindeer when they ought to be pondering God in their minds and in their flesh. Their minds will be focused on Christmas cards and cookies when they should be focused on Christ's condescension or his humility or when he humbled himself. So today on the Sunday immediately after Christmas, I believe it's important to remind ourselves of the importance of the incarnation before we head into the new year. God himself takes on human flesh to become our substitute sacrifice. And in doing so, he bears the wrath of God by taking the penalty rightly due to you and I for our sins and rebellion. In addition, God exchanges Jesus' perfect obedience for our rebellion and then adopts us as his children. This enables us to be accepted by God and grants us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. That is the present that you and I, the gift that you and I so desperately need. It's the gift that we should be giving, not in the fact that we can impart that to others, but we can share that gift to our children, to our loved ones, to our friends, and to our family. And until that day that Jesus comes, that should be our anticipation. That should be our focus. This truth was prophesied by Isaiah centuries before Christ came. And he gave us such a wonderful word, picture of what to expect. You'll see it here on the monitor, Isaiah chapter 9, 6-7. And I'm going to ask you to read this along with me. If you're able to read it, okay. Can you read this out loud with me? Ready? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And we thank you for your zeal, Father. 
It is for your name and for your glory that you have given us this wonderful gift. That you sent Jesus into the flesh to rescue us from our own sin and rebellion. And so, Father, as we just take a moment for the next 40 minutes, Lord, that we would focus on this and this will uh, enhance our, our understanding of Christmas. No matter how well we think we know this story, help us to pay attention. Give us a new desire to hear it, a new desire to share it, to instruct others in this good gift. We thank you so much. We just pray for you to join with us and for your spirit to have its work in our lives. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. In the last chapter, thank you, in the last chapter of Exodus, we had read that Moses and the Israelites finished building the tabernacle. Remember that from several years ago? They finished building the tabernacle after wandering through the desert, or wandering through the, I mean, going into the wilderness, I should say, crossing the Red Sea. Before their wandering years, they build that tabernacle. And what we read in the last chapter of Exodus, and a cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Remember that? We, we see that as the closing chat, verses of, of Exodus, that, that God's glory is now coming among the men, and his glory is going to be there in that tent of meeting where, where Moses would go and talk to the Lord. What a wondrous, joyous moment that must have been for the children of Israel after 400 long years of being under the hand of the Egyptians. They have been slayed by the Egyptians for over 400 years, but now their God is with them. Not only did Yahweh hear, see, remember, and love the Hebrew children by rescuing them from slavery, by delivering them out of the clutches of Pharaoh's wrath, by providing food and water in the desert, by instituting a covenant, making them his people, keeping them safe from their enemies, and providing the land for their future generations to, be, uh, to grow and to pos- prosper, God now comes to dwell among them, restoring in some sense the fellowship that our first parents had lost in the garden. However, Moses did record one sentence that at first glance can be overlooked, but deserves our attention immediately. After recording that the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, Moses notes that he was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So the glory of the Lord was there, but he yet was not able to go fully into it. Why is this? As we have read in Exodus several years ago, Moses many times was in the presence of God when he found the burning bush that Yahweh spoke through, on the Mount Sinai when he was given the law, in the previous tense of meeting when God would instruct him. And now each time we must point out that he did not actually see God, but the glory of God. It was just a portion of God's glory. Scripture tells us that no man has ever seen God and that no man could stand in his presence because of our sin. Scripture tells us that holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Habakkuk says, speaking of Yahweh, you are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. In other words, he cannot see us, be with us. We cannot see him. Just as the curse of sin and death brings about the ejection of Adam and Eve from the garden, Moses' sin keeps him from entering into the presence of God fully. 
However, that was only temporary as we read in book, uh, the book of Leviticus 1.1, just a few chapters later in the Torah, that the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meetings. Again, a wonderful verse that demonstrates that even a man like Moses, a man who committed murder, murder could approach and speak with Yahweh when invited. And that's important. Moses, one who murdered a man, was allowed to come and speak to God and hear from God when God invited him. That's so important for us to understand. Now, God had spoken to men in the past through dreams, visions, and angels, and even audibly, but never was a man invited to approach God in such a way. As we learned in our study of Exodus, God made a way for man to worship and commune with God through his laws, his rituals, and his sacrifices. Yet, all of this had a shortcoming. Those rituals, those sacrifices, those laws had a shortcoming. It was only temporary. It was not permanent. It had to be done over and over and over. So I believe you're in Hebrews chapter 10. If not, get there, Hebrews chapter 10. And here we read that even though the tabernacle was a special dwelling for the glory of God and the sacrifices accepted as atonement for sins of the people, the writer of Hebrew tells us in chapter 10, verse 1, that for since the law was, has but a shadow of good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. In other words, would they have not ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, could no longer or would no longer have any consciousness of sin? Look at verse 3. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins each year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. For centuries, Israel performed these sacrifices to atone for sin, never finding complete salvation, but only the restraining wrath of God until a final sacrifice could be made that would be accepted by God. Even then, Scripture teaches that it was not the blood of bulls and goats that appeased God, but the heart. King David sings, I should say, in his confession found in Psalms 51, For you will not delight in sacrifices, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Now, at the time of writing this song, David knew intimately from this experience. This truth came from the painful reality of the death of his son due to David's own sin. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, 13-14, we read of the consequences of David's sin and the conversation between him and the prophet Nathan, who said, David said to Nathan, I should say, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nonetheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, it is the child who is born to you shall die. Now, this seems real harsh to you and I today, doesn't it? A child would die for the sins of his father. Why would God kill the son for the father's sin? Well, this was reflected first in the covenant that we read in Exodus. In Exodus chapter 34, we read of Yahweh's character in chapter verse 6, where he says, The Lord, the Lord God... A God merciful and gracious, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and unfaithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions of sin. Now, this is a God worth worshiping. This is a God worth loving. God is revealing a wonderful truth about his character. God is merciful. God is gracious. God is forgiving. Yet, as we continue in that passage, he also reveals that he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Let me ask you, children, is this fair? Should you pay the penalty for your parents' sin? That's not right. That's not fair, is it? We would say, wait a second, that's not right. He did wrong. Why am I paying for it? But in the Old Testament, when we look at sin, sin continues through generations. And probably you and I could probably say, if you're like me, could say, yeah, you've seen that. Maybe through your own family. What we call those generational sins, where it seems like people continually repeat the same mistakes, habits. Sin. And we could plead them. And we just want to break that cycle. We try behavior modification. We try all sorts of things to break that cycle. And, and just when we see that, hey, we might be doing well, our children seem to be doing better, then they find that wind up making the same sinful mistakes and choices. But now take your Bible and turn to Jeremiah 31. Because this is so important for us to see. A lot of this is going to be a reminder for you. And you say, what does this have to do with Christmas? But everything, when we talk about the incarnation, the word become flesh. In Jeremiah 31, we're going to read in verse 27. Not only was that sacrificial system temporary, but it was also inadequate to deal with the issues of the heart. And that's the problem. Couldn't deal with the heart. As we know, the Bible tells us that the heart is desperately wicked. We spent some weeks going over that in Jesus' message on the Sermon of the Plain. And that every inclination of man is to do evil. One of the motivations for a man to quell the passion of his heart was to understand that his sin affected everyone around him, including his family. And I just want to take a moment and take an editorial note. That's still a principle that applies today. You may think, men, that you are doing something and you're getting away because it's, not, it's only your choice. But let me tell you, your sinful choices will affect your children. Moms, I'm, I'm saying the same thing and on and on and so forth. And so we need to recognize that, that our sin affects more than us. It's like a pebble thrown into a pond. It, 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 it branches out and waves out. And this is harsh. But as we know, it's an ineffective way to fight sin. In other words, me fighting, remembering that it hurts my children sometimes is good, but it's, it's ineffective. I, I don't always think about others when I sin. I, I'm thinking about myself. But God in his plan and his great purpose of salvation, that redemption chapter of his story, promises Jeremiah in chapter 31, look at verse, 20, verse 27, that the whole, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that as I watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm. In other words, discipling them, punishing them for their sin. So I will watch over them to build and to plant. So the God who is punishing and, and using justice is also going to build and to plant. 
In those days they shall no longer say, The father shall have eaten sour grapes, and his children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. Now that's a, that's a, that's a strange Jewish proverb to you and I. What does it mean? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are on, set on edge. Have you ever had anything that's sour? You know, it, it just kind of gets to you. You get that little thing between the ears and your, your teeth might hurt. Well, what it was saying, a proverb was saying, well, the parent is sitting, but the child is getting receiving the result of it. So in the same way he's saying it's, it's different here. If you're eating it, you're the only one that's going to feel it. In other words, there is a day coming that God is saying, as I'm going to break this cycle. God goes on to promise in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, Well, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on that day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, speaking of the old covenant. My covenant that they broke, although though I was their husband, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. <clears throat> I will put my law within them, speaking of their heart, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. There's going to be a new covenant, a new relationship, a new power. And this new covenant that God promises here in Ezekiel, or Jeremiah and Ezekiel finds its fulfillment in Matthew 26, 26. As Jesus with his disciples on the night he was betrayed proclaims this. You and I read this many times each and every month. Take eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given things, he gave it to them saying, drink of it all, all of it, all of you. For this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So I know we're going in some deep territory very, very quick. A lot of it hopefully is a reminder of you for you've been with me for so long is that we're seeing is God is making a plan of redemption. At first it started through the law, through the blood, through the blood of goats and bulls, but yet it was temporary. There was no power to change the heart. It was ineffective. And God says, I'm going to make a better way. Now we usually consider this verse that we just read when we take communion Lord, and on, on, on Easter. But this has a wonderful implications for Christian as well. With this or Christmas as well. What this verse is informing us is that you and I no longer need the body of bulls and goats to temporarily atone for our sins. God is making a better, permanent way to deal with our sins. And that's what you and I need, even on Christmas. As our scripture reading earlier proclaimed, if the blood of goats and bulls, I'm sorry, but earlier I reread this. If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of heifer and sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In other words, if bulls and goats were able to, to appease the wrath of God, to purify one's conscience, saying, I've done what God has asked. How much more will the blood of Christ do in dealing with our sins and purifying our conscience? Now, if you're sitting there, I think you have a very good question to ask of me. Rob, what in the world does this have to do with Christmas? This is not what we're to talk about. It should be joy and happiness. 
here we are talking about Old Testament laws and rituals. Well, it's the incarnation. Without the incarnation, there would be no crucifixion, no resurrection, no ascension, no return of Christ. God in his mercy is restoring all of creation, including sinful, rebellious men and women. The tabernacle, the rituals, the laws, the sacrifices were part of God's progressive plan. But now in the fullness of time, as scripture tells us, he brings a better permanent sacrifice, his son, Jesus Christ. And this brings us to our main passage, a body you have prepared. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 10. Consequently, the writer writes, the writer of Hebrew writes, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book, just Jesus speaking to the Father. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he had, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first, speaking of the first Mosaic law, in order to establish the second that Jesus does. And by that, we have been sanctified. If you have your Bibles, you want to underline this. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. In other words, it wasn't the blood of goats and bulls that would make us right with God, but the body of Christ, the one that was prepared for him by God. Why the incarnation? Why do we speak of it? Why is it important during the Christmas time? It was necessary for something, for someone better than bulls and goats to pay for the sins of men and women forever. Complete. Done. Hebrews 9.22 informs us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. The penalty of sin is death. In Genesis and Exodus, we read that God accepts a substitute for our sins. But as we have spoken of earlier, that substitute was not sufficient. In Jesus, you and I find God's permanent solution of making us right with God. This is essentially the wondrous miracle of the Christmas story. Yes, the baby born in the birth, but what that baby was born to do. We see this as Christmas uh, we see this Christmas miracle in Matthew one twenty one. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took, uh, took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Matthew writes, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall, come, uh, shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Just as Moses, an Israelite, saw the glory of God come upon that tabernacle, and as Solomon and them saw the glory of God come upon the temple, you and I see the glory of God come upon the temple of Jesus Christ through his body, through his birth, his death and resurrection. Not only will Jesus save us from our sin, but by coming in the flesh, by becoming a man, we also will once again see the glory of God that left the temple after uh, the exile of Israel. In the beginning, John says, what's the word? The word was with God, and the word was God. 
And he goes on to say that we have seen his glory. The glory is the only son from the father. Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the father. Remember, scripture tells us no one has seen the father. But Jesus says, now that I've come, I've made the invisible visible. That's what scripture says. Jesus is the image of God, the visible image of an invisible God. My prayer is that everyone that hears my voice this morning or watches me later is that you will see Jesus, the incarnating one, the one who come, who came to set us free. Just as Moses witnessed the glory of God that's sitting down on the tabernacle, and then invited, and was then invited to commune with God, we see the glory of God descend in the ministry of Jesus, and then you and I are invited to come and commune with Him. Again, you've got to remember, it's not that we invite God, it's that God invites us. That's the wonder of the Bible. That's the wonder of the redemption plan. The Spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. So there is much to celebrate this Christmas. For Christ is inviting you to join him at that dinner table. Come and sup with me. Jesus, the Son of God, came in flesh, was born to die for the sins of God's chosen people, fulfilling what God required. And what was that? Perfection. There are many things designed by Satan to distract us from this simple gospel. And he has been successful in creating competing idols, gifts, money, seasonal spirits to draw us away from God. We have spent probably much time this Christmas season thinking of things about Christmas, but not the thing that makes Christmas truly special. He has crafted a false sense of peace truly by preaching a different gospel. The world looks at the peace promised by Scripture as some type of cheesy, sentimental emotion rather than God reconciling the world to himself through the death of his son. I would ask you, and it may be too late, but as we just continue out this year, do not fall into Satan's trap. If you have, prepare yourself for the, for the next year. Focus on that which is life-changing and life-giving. So how do we recapture the true spirit of Christmas? Well, turn once again to Hebrews 10. You might still be there. You and I just need to simply follow Scripture. Just as Moses was invited to enter the inner sanctum of the tabernacle, so too have you and I been invited into the presence of a holy God. Look at verse 19 of chapter 10. Therefore, the fact that Christ offered himself once for all. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the, through the curtain, that is, through the flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, 
all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's simple. Let us draw near to him. Let us hold fast our confidence and let us continue to live and encourage one another. I'd like to give you a word of encouragement. It's the best Christmas present ever. You'll see it here on the monitor. Duster, uh, Pastor Dustin Benj asked, what does the incarnation teach us? What does the incarnation teach us? One, it teaches us, number one, that God is not a distant ruler. He is not someone who has put the universe into motion and then wound up a clock and then walked away. No, God is with us. Jesus is here. He is upholding us by his hand. He sees, he hears, he knows our pain and our suffering. And he's here to build and to plant up. We also see that God is the one who takes initiative. He is the one who loved us, the one who chose us, the one who calls us, the one who justifies us, the one who sanctifies us, the one who will one day glorify us. You see, he takes the initiative. Again, it's not us working our way up to him. I heard uh, one pastor, I, I can't remember his name, old, old school pastor. He was just speaking today is that you never reach the mountaintop with God. God is the one who comes down among us and brings us up. God has an eternal plan. We've spoken of that. The prince slays the dragon, wins the girl. He has a plan to redeem, reconcile us to God. God reveals himself in Christ. He is the image of God. And if we can see Jesus through the words of Jesus, through the ministry of Jesus, you and I now see God's mercy, his love, his kindness, his compassion. Yes, also his anger and his justice. But then number five, God provides a way to himself. He does not leave us, but he comes and he holds his hand and says, come. And he grabs us, as it were, and brings us to himself. Number six, God demonstrates his love for us that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrates his love for us. And number seven, God loves to rescue sinners. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. So when you and I think of Christmas, we ought to be thinking of the incarnation. Not just Christmas trees and Christmas decorations and Hallmark movies and all sorts of other types of things. I have to say that one thing, I've, 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 I did not get any Christmas fudge this year. And so I'm like, what? this doesn't even seem like Christmas. But you know what? Christmas fudge pales in comparison to the incarnation. And I believe that's what Banna is anyway. When I get to heaven, I'm going to have plenty of Christmas fudge. With walnuts, thank you, great, great memory. With a little bit of fl- with fudge, chocolate on top of it, you just all, ch- I mean, it's just, it's just a killer. Yeah, it'll put me right into heaven probably, right, real quick. But what you and I need to realize that Christmas is about the incarnation. And if we're honest, we've lost that. That's probably the last thing you thought of other than when you're just here in front of me. But that's the gift that's been given to us. And it's the gift that always keeps giving. We don't have to give it back. It doesn't have a warranty on it. Well, I guess it has a warranty. It has no limit on it. It doesn't break. It doesn't take it back. That's the gift that we must embrace. So for us today, as we get ready to close here, there's three things, four things that God wants from you. God wants you to understand that the celebration of the incarnation 
should not be tainted with selfish, greedy, covetous thoughts and actions. We're all guilty of that. We've been trained from our earliest years that that's what Christmas is about. It's about us giving and getting, expertise of getting gifts. The Son of God did not come to earth so that we could obtain more items that will not even last for eternity. If you're like me, you probably can think of some Christmas presents that you're ready to throw away or just uh, that's already been broken or no, that you say, not too much noise, no batteries for that. Number two, God wants you to believe that Jesus, the Son of God, came in flesh to redeem God. So, Landon, I'm not going to throw away any of your gifts, I promise. I don't know if I did, I, did, I, did I scare you on that one? God wants you to believe that Jesus, the Son of God, came in the flesh to redeem God's children from the power, the penalty, and the presence of sin. God wants you to desire the gift of salvation and our inheritance more than the things of the world. Give your children a thirst and a hunger for the things of God. That will come when you have family worship, when you pray together, when you uh, talk about God together, when you ex- uh, exalt the glory of God and the goodness of God in your life, especially in the most deepest, darkest times of your life. Give your children, your grandchildren, and others around you a thirst and a hunger for the things of God. And number four, God wants you to take up your cross. Deny yourself and follow him. Let's recover that reason for the season. I hate that phrase, but there is a point in it. Let's remember the incarnation, the power and the privilege of the incarnation in the life of a Christian. With every head bowed and every head closed, (coughs) our worship team, go ahead and come on up. I want you to take a moment to pause and consider... And pray and respond to the Holy Spirit's work. Does this mean buying, giving, and receiving gifts is sinful? No, not at all. That's how we show our love for each other. There's nothing wrong with giving gifts, by the way. There's nothing wrong with trimming the tree. There's nothing wrong with decorating your house. All those things are fine when done with a thought of what the incarnation is. So if I, I do, want, do not want to be mistaken or misthought there. But never let the incarnation be lost in all of that holiday cheer. So with that, would you understand what God wants from you? Would you trust in him? And would you finish the rest of the year by celebrating the incarnation? Not only just during Christmas, but each and every day. I'm going to ask Randy to come and close us with our pastor's prayer. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.